Hi, I'm Andrew Dubber, but you can just call me Dubber. Everyone else does. I'm the director of Music Tech Fest, and this is the MTF Podcast. Now, you know when you look on someone's Twitter profile sometimes, and in the part where it says the town, city, or country they're in, and instead of saying London or Belgrade or Saskatchewan or whatever, it just says the world? That's kind of how I think of Shane Shapiro. He's someone I met through Unconvention, which is a global knowledge event for the independent music sector. It's a fantastic organisation that really supports and nurtures the grassroots industry and local scenes. There's been over a hundred of their events so far, and I've been lucky enough to be invited to Unconventions in all sorts of places all around the world over the past decade. India, Brazil, Colombia, Argentina, Venezuela, all over Europe and in all sorts of places all over the UK. And there are a few recurring themes for the independent music sector. One of them is do it together. DIY is not enough. We need to help each other out. Probably more so now than ever before. And another is that place matters. And that's something that Shane Shapiro's organisation, Sound Diplomacy, is very much about. I say that Shane's at home in the world, but he's very much about the microcosm of the town, the city, the region. Sound Diplomacy is about local economies. It's about local communities. It's about vibrant regional ecosystems and about how those are supported. I mean, economically supported and grown through music policy. To explain... From the place he calls home, here's Shane Shapiro. Enjoy. Shane Shapiro, thanks so much for joining us for the MTF podcast today. Thanks, Dover. It's good to be here. It's, uh, I appreciate being asked. We actually met in Uganda, of all places. I think so, yeah. Yeah. What was your, what was your connection with uh, Unconvention? Uh, I've known them for years. I've known Ruth, well, when Ruth was, was involved in Jeff, um, I think in my old job, I was the music export rep for um, the Canadian Independent Music Association many moons ago. Mm-hmm. I think I met them through that. Uh-huh. I met a lot of festivals through that, you know, pitching Canadian acts and stuff. Yeah. And I don't remember why I was invited out to Uganda, but I, um, I'll take it, you know. I, I've, I've, I've been there since once before, uh, once after. and For sure. I, I would go every year if I could. Fantastic. Yeah, I mean, so is this something that happens to you a lot? You get invited to speak at places all over the world? Yeah, well, pre-COVID, I was on the road five, six months of the year. Um, not just speaking, but we have clients all over the world. So a lot of um, a lot of sitting on planes. And sure. now I've realized that I probably didn't need to do that, which... Um, you know, which is really good. It's helping me yeah, for sure. uh, resolve my carbon footprint. But yes, tons of traveling. I've been, I don't know how many countries, I don't know how many I've been to, maybe 60 or 70 around the world. Wow. And we is Sound Diplomacy. What's that? Uh, we are a, a global um, consultancy. We work with cities and governments and large organizations all over the world on music uh, strategy and policy. So really we're... We call ourselves music people for non-music people. So our job is to try to translate the value of music uh, in all its forms and functions um, to change something locally, whether it's through economic development or tourism or equity, uh, inclusion, community development. So really our job is to try to explain how music makes something better, whether that's something as a tax policy or a... um, or the building of a school over there instead of over here, or um, the size of a festival, all sorts of things. Right. And, and which end are you coming at this from? Is, are you attempting to make things better for musicians? Are you te- attempting to use music to make things better for society? Uh, are you trying to help the politicians in a particular way? I, I would say that we're doing all of that. Um, you know, we're very, I, I believe that we're very good at identifying um, the self-interest that we need to satisfy in the situation that we're in, but everything always comes back to musicians. Mm-hmm. So yes, you know, my, everything that we do is based around trying to help artists and help musicians. We just do it in a different way. Right. So instead of going one at a time, we're trying to create, create policy change that could help 10,000 artists at once, mm. even though often most people don't see what we do or, or realize that we're doing it, but that that's okay with me. I, 
I'm not in it to be recognized. I'm in it to create change. Yep. So you're locked down right now. Where are you locked down? Uh, in East London, in um, Forest Gate. Uh-huh. And that's where Sound Diplomacy is based or you you now have completely dispersed all over the world? Uh, we have four offices, actual offices um, in London Bridge in London, um, as well as in Berlin, Barcelona, and in the US and New Orleans. Mm. Um, we have people dotted around. So we... We have people um, now in all all over the U.S. in random places. Just happens to be where they live. Um, but we also have someone in Amsterdam. We have someone, two people in Italy. Um, we have someone in Colombia. They're just you know. So we are very. We we've always been somewhat remote working to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. Um, more so now. Right. Yeah. And this seems like maybe the obvious question, but what's so great about music? <laughs> I, I think that's a good question. I, I think to me, what's great about music is how it impacts everything around it. You know, music is music is a way to have a conversation about all sorts of things, um, about getting to know each other better, about conflicts, um, trying to reduce conflict, even um, about equality uh, across gender, race, ethnic discipline, so on and so forth. I think that, you know, music is a tool that we have. I think music and food are the only tools that we have where we can cross any boundary and still find something to unify us. Hmm. So, you know, for me, I, I believe that we, we, we underestimate the power that music has, but yet we're using its power every day without recognizing, without recognizing it, hmm. you know, even like, and it doesn't matter what political affiliation, even Trump going on stage to songs he's not allowed to play. Um, he's uniting people via music. Right. And, and, and I think that's, a, that's an incredibly powerful thing. Whatever you believe in, you, there is something positive that music can bring you. And we, if we recognize that better, if we create policies around that, um, then I think it can improve everyone's day to day. So... Is this a hard sell when you uh, take this yeah. idea to politicians? I mean, do they get it quickly or? No. Um, well, some do, to be frank. You know, a politician, speaking bluntly, it's, it's how, do I, how, how do I initiate something so that people will vote for me? Mm. Um, and because music is such a complicated ecosystem from an industrial perspective, right, as you know, Um, how people make money out of it and how the general public thinks people make money out of it are very different. And then when you go further down into, you know, countries that may lack intellectual property mechanisms and infrastructure or even basic forms of infrastructure where music becomes more a cultural and tribal thing than an economic thing, convincing people that music is a economic, b an industry, c people make money out of it. And D, you can make a lot of money out of it, um, is hard uh, because it's not a point of sale. It's, you know, you're not selling a widget or you're not selling a car tire to fit on a car. You're selling something where uh, the complexities of how money flows uh, is, is hard to comprehend. So especially when you have to explain something in five seconds to someone, they have to get it. Yeah. And the music industry... You know, we, we thrive on complexity. We built a system around managing complexity that benefits some and doesn't benefit others. Mm-hmm. Um, and that does not translate very well into how to create simple mechanisms to enable governments to support artists in one, one way or another. Right. Do you ever find yourself arguing the other way? Like, okay, yes, it's a, it's a commercial proposition, but also it does all these other things about social cohesion and uh, and bringing people together that's, you know, valuable and interesting. Is, or, or do you always have to take the sort of the economic argument with a politician? 90% of the time it's the economic argument. Most people get the social argument. They don't get investing in the social argument, uh-huh. but I don't tend to have to um, – convince people that music is good. I think most people do get that. Mm-hmm. But it, it's the so what that we fight for all the time. Um, right. And most of the time, I would say, you know, 90% of the time, there's an economic um, uh, argument that has to be brought in, in one way or another. It does, it, it's, 
in 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 some cases, you know, a lot of governments at, at all levels invest in music, but they're just doing it in the wrong way, or you know, they're investing in particular genres or disciplines and ignoring others, mm-hmm. or they're you know not recognizing the breadth of revenue models that exist, and you know, a lot of cities invest in music through through land, you know, cities own venues, but have no understanding of, mm-hmm. of IP. So it's, you know, it's a, it's a lifelong thing. I don't think I'm ever going to win the argument. I don't think there is a, I don't think there is an end game here. I just think it's a process that right. we're just trying to enlarge the, enlarge the choir, so to speak, never, you know, never end the concert. Is there a right answer or is it on a place by place basis? The right answer is to do something um, and, and do something in an equitable way. So, you know, we, we have this model, we call it genre agnosticism, right? Um, where convincing people to invest in music is great. And then they invest in their music mm-hmm. right. and that's a problem. So, um, you know, and we see this, you know, we have a, we have a, I believe a, a real challenge in democratizing music education provision, what, let alone fighting for it. But then once it exists, it tends to be Western classical, um, which is one fantastic form of music among others. It's so I, I, I feel that um, it's constantly difficult in different ways. And I even though I, I didn't intend to do this, but I've had to become kind of a cultural ethnographer in some respects. Like it, it, you, you can put your foot in your mouth pretty, pretty quickly in, in my, in what I do um, by not understanding uh-huh. local traditions or local, um, you know, local initiatives. Sure. Uh, so where do you come at this from? What's your kind of inroad to music? What was the point at which you went, you know, this music thing's pretty cool. I should be uh, spending my time and energy there. I didn't, well, first off, I'm not good at anything. So that's, um, I don't have any discernible <laughs> skill. Um, I'm not, you know, uh-huh. yeah. So we have like, that in common. Well, you know, there's the, it, when you're a skilled trade, like my, you know, my partner's a graphic designer, that's a skilled trade, taught how to do it like a carpenter or whatever. Um, I don't have any of those skills. That's one. Two is I, I started working in music when I was in high school. So I never had an opportunity to do anything else. The only other thing I ever did was work in kitchens because I was allowed to, because kitchens, you can do shift work um, when you're doing music-based things. So I don't think about it that way. So I, I started working in a record store when I was 15 that led to working in a music venue, and then I started writing for music magazines. Um, I then, you know, badly ran festivals and um, and worked. Uh, I had my own booking agency and management company. We just have a kettle on in the background, so. Um, I, yeah, I hope I hope you get a cup of coffee out of it. I do get a cup of coffee out of it. Yeah, uh, I'm very lucky. And I've got, so I don't think about it that way. So music's always been a part of my life. Um, right. and I discovered that I'm, I'm the type of person that I'm really bad at things I don't like to do. So, you know, I, I just don't put, I just don't put any effort into it. So I had to do something that I loved. Some uh-huh. people, they'll have a job and then they'll pursue other things on the side. I don't, that's not me. So right. music became everything. And then over the years, I just started being more and more involved in, different aspects of the industry. Um, and then I moved to the UK and I ended up working at a record label. And then that led to working for the export office. And then that led to setting up my own, my own firm. Uh-huh. But not everybody who really likes music or even everybody who really likes music and gets into music professionally then does a PhD in music policy. Um, well, I, I, I've always been, I've always been a nerd, I guess, in that regard. I've always, enjoyed academia, but I didn't want to be an academic, um, <laughs> to be frank. And I know you're similar. I, I didn't want to write stuff that no one's going to read. And I didn't want to write a book that costs a hundred pounds for no reason. Um, you know, and, mm-hmm. and I, I don't say that negatively because I, I read and have incredible respect for tons of academics. There's just, there's two great books about what we do written by academics. 
what we do in a general sense, not what we do um, uh-huh. around music and, and public policy. Yeah. Um, but to be frank, so I, I, the reason I did PhD was, um, to be frank, was a, was a, was a reason to stay in the country. I had some immigration issues at the time in the UK and I wanted to stay in the country. Um, it's a very long story. It was never an issue. I, it was all going to be fine, but the PhD became the simplest path to the solution. And when I, you know, when I was given the opportunity to do it, I was given a scholarship as well. So I thought, what the hell? I didn't think about pursuing academia. I didn't think about it in that way. I just thought about this is another thing that I can do. And I'm glad I did it. And I, I, I come at it from a different approach. I think that, again, it's that kind of holistic societal approach around, um, around music that we underestimate. Right. So why was it important to you to be based in the UK? Um, well, it was uh, a personal decision to come to the UK. Uh, I... Is, I mean, is it a music scene thing? No, or it's, with it? I moved, I moved, I did a, like I did a year abroad at Leeds. So that's how I moved to the UK. I did the standard right. North American. From Canada, abroad. let's, let's be clear, right? Yes, yes. I'm Canadian. Yeah, I'm from near Toronto. Um, and um, I came over in 2004 to do a year abroad. Then actually I went home for four months mm-hmm. to finish school. And then I moved back, but I moved to the Netherlands to do my master's. And I right. lived in the Netherlands for two and a half years, um, or two years, something like that. And um, so I moved. I moved to the UK in 2007 um, for personal reasons. Um, my my partner was here, but to be honest, I I didn't see economic opportunities for me in the Netherlands um, compared to in the UK. Right. And I was I was a music journalist, so I was writing for a few music magazines here. I had. I had a little bit of, I had some opportunities. So that's why I didn't think I wanted to move here because of the music scene or anything like that. But mm-hmm. I'm glad I did. I think London, London is a city that presents opportunities to people who seek them. Um, and the people that I've met and the relationships that I've developed over the years would never have happened if I stayed in Amsterdam. Right. And I say that with utmost love and admiration of Amsterdam. I, uh, I could spend the rest of my life there if I, if, if, circumstances changed i love it but london london has been um you know the place to better test and the place to be challenged and the place to develop my company Mm. so the company strategy is it just you turn up and you have meetings with politicians and you say to them music's really cool uh, or, or is there That's some other kind of because i know that you organize events for instance uh we do well yeah our our a company strategy. That's a good question. Um, we've sat down and tried to write it down a few times, but never been very successful. I think it's based on, it's based on convening people. Yes. So we have a company called Music Cities Events that um, runs conferences and we have our own online platform called the Music Cities Community, which is a subscription platform. Um, so that is my entry into tech, I guess. Um, that, um, and that the whole objective there is thought leadership and best practice and the conferences became the biggest in the world. So our Music Cities convention gets, we have five, 600 people come. We've done um, eight or nine of them now. And we've, off, and we've spawned some new events off of that. So we've got one around music and tourism, one around music and real estate. Um, you know, I think the, the, the strategy of the company is based on, to be honest, on sharing. Um, a lot of people think we're a nonprofit. No, we're not. We're a for-profit, but we do a lot of thought leadership. We put a lot of reports out uh, for free because I believe that if people don't understand what we're doing, then we can't sell it. Right. So, you know, like who's going to buy a music strategy if they don't know what a music strategy is? And because we, I, I inadvertently, to be honest, I got my coffee now. I, in, cheers. I, uh, I inadvertently, cheers created this company that no one was doing what we were doing, right? That's why a lot of people don't know what we do. Right. And still, there we don't have a huge amount of competition. There are some people doing it now, which is good. Mm-hmm. You, I want that. Um, so it's a, you know, so I'm lucky. We're in a blue sky company in a way. We can create whatever we want. But at the same time, the issue was no one had any idea what we were doing. And there's no line on a spreadsheet in a government budget for music strategy. And when you say government, you mean city government specifically, don't you? 
No, no, we work pan from intergovernmental. We work for the United Nations down to local municipalities. Uh-huh. Um, uh, we we have clients uh, across that entire thing. We've done national music policy, which is mainly focused on education, tourism, and copyright. Mm-hmm. And local music policy is mainly about land use, licensing, education, you know, the whole like nightlife versus wanting to stay in thing, all of that. Um, but so in order to get our clients to create a line on a spreadsheet, so to speak, so that, um, so that we have, we, we can charge for our services. Yeah. Uh, we had to, we had to proselytize. We had to disseminate for free. So I think our strategy is that is sound diplomacy has to stand for something and it has to continue to stand for something. Um, and it's really important to me that everything that we do is good. So, you know, I know you've known me for a while. I, I try to be very ethical in everything that we do. Um, but I, but we, we chose strategically to be a for-profit company to prove that you can do this as a for-profit company. Hmm. If I was a charity, then we would further this, this increased victimization, I believe, of the music industry, which is happening now. You know, we need help. We're the victims. Mm-hmm. Music is charity. Um, I think that's, I, I really struggle with that. I think music is not. Music is, music is something that we all need to recognize and pay for and value. So we strategically decided to be a for-profit company, but we do it with morals and with ethics. Is Britain a particularly hard place to have that conversation right now? <laughs> um, yes and no. Um, you know, I, I don't want to, I'm not going to be political, like, because, you know, the word diplomacy is in our name. Isn't that your job? It's my job to be diplomatic. Um, uh-huh. I, I, I don't believe that the, the priorities of this government, whether one believes them or agrees with them or not, and the priorities of the music industry right now in this exact moment are different. That's the long and short of it as I see. You know, there's, from, from, from my vantage point, our government is very ideological, first off. Um, and they are focused on ensuring that those who voted for them that uh, didn't vote for them in the previous election and may not vote for them next time, the so-called red wall, um, you know, that services are, are delivered to them and investments delivered to them. That's one thing I've noticed, too, is, you know, our government is pursuing a hard Brexit, which is really, really scary to me, but it is what it is. And if that's the way it's going to be, then that's the way it's going to be. Um, and we have to make lemons out of whatever it is. Um, and there, you know, and there are a couple other um, and infrastructure priorities. So housing is a big priority. I don't think that the creative industries as a whole, not just the music industry, have done a great job trying to align our growth strategy with their priorities because we're in a state of. Of, of triage because we're, and, and it is incredibly frightening right now. And I don't think that the government has, so I don't think the two have aligned of that to have a successful future post-Brexit. Mm-hmm. We need thriving cultural and creative institutions. And this is one of the things that we are genuinely world leading at. Right. We, we are. So you would think that investing in it um, would be a, a good pro-Brexit model. Um, but because those in most of us who, um, who are responsible for that content are not supporters of, of, of this government's policies and, and voted for the other guy or didn't vote at all, I, that, that's how I see it. I see that there's a disconnect and we haven't been able to align it. And, and if we're not able to align it, then we're going to see institutions, well, we're already seeing institutions close. And I don't quite understand why the recognition of these institutions closing being of, of significant long-term impact to the you know, future economic growth of our country, Brexit or no Brexit, hasn't been well thought of. I think that's one thing too, is a lot of the ways that the government spends money now which could include the creative industries through the regeneration of high streets, um, investment in small towns, things like that. Um, a lot of the provisions in those policies do not have adequate kind of translation to the creative industries, even though if you're putting money into your town center, obviously 
music, culture, creativity, all that stuff, especially now when the value of these of, of land has is, is been depressed. Um, again, there's a win-win there, but I don't think it's been well communicated. I need, I probably need to do a better job. Just been focused on other markets right now. You're absolutely so, right. That, I, that hope, is- I hope, I hope that explained it. Like I, I you know, it, we have to take the emotion out of it. And that's really scary when your back is against the wall, yeah. you can't pay your staff and your venue is going to close. And I, I fear for a lot of my friends and colleagues and people that I love and admire, mm. you know, sound diplomacy is not, uh, we, we as well, we are, um, like any company, you know, a few months away from, from frightening times, but you know, so is Ernst and Young and BP. Um, but then, and then there's, and then there's a, there's this weird dichotomy that is created between for-profit and non-for-profit, which is promulgated by the, by this kind of Americanization of how we view the arts and culture. And that in and of itself is a problem because it's ridiculous. Like, you know, we don't look at BP as for-profit, non-for-profit, yet they, I'm just using them as an example, you know, they are recipients of a huge amount of, of taxpayer money, let alone any farm in this country. Um, so we're not, we're losing the translation battle. Despite, if you add the creative industries up, they're number three behind, I think it is um, f- financial services and oil and gas, I think are one and two. I think creative industries are th- number three in terms of the value to the economy if you add them all up together. Right. So I think that if the government steps in and helps stabilize, which I'm still not 100% sure they will, but I do believe that when a few very, very large cultural institutions that ministers like to go to close, um, I think that that may prompt some action. And then maybe there could be a conversation about this New Deal for Culture in the UK mm. that, like it or not, is aligned with whatever our future is post-Brexit. Right. It's a long answer, but that's this is the nerdy nerdiness in me. And, and you're absolutely right. That is the diplomatic way of, of uh, framing the problem, which is, uh, which is quite nice. Is there anywhere that you can think of that is more aligned? I mean, I'm not expecting a utopia anywhere, but where the, the policy um, ambitions and the, the interests of the music sector or creative industries are really well aligned. Well, Canada is one of the best examples, but Canada... Uh, this is what I wrote my PhD on. So like there are reasons why Canada is the way Canada is. And those reasons are uniquely Canadian. And they, you know, they come back to this, this need to create a construct of Canada. Canada, what does that even mean? You have to create the meaning because to some people we're just little America to others we're you know, little America with some French people over there. Like it's, it's, but Canadian from a cultural perspective, given we're a new country, uh, the creation and support and facilitation of that meeting requires in intentional capital investment in creating and sustaining the meeting. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of reasons why Canada invests in culture. Um, and, and it's the right thing to do, you know, like, and, and because when I say I'm Canadian, it means something that's because of the culture that we've created. Right. It's so there's, there's been a lot of stimulus put in um, there, not, for everyone, some sectors have been left out. Uh, I think that New Zealand has done a very good job. I think, oddly, a lot of the countries run by women um, have done pretty good jobs. Uh, uh, Germany, Denmark. It's such a complex issue, and it comes back to everything that we're seeing now is based on mistakes we made in the past. You know, COVID didn't create these issues. COVID didn't create a a, a wide scale depreciation of the value of the freelancer gig worker or this commodification of music that disassociates the creator from the created where all we care about is the song and who cares how it got to us Hmm. it all of these issues are and they're not entirely governmental issues they're they're based on you know on a neoliberal capitalism um and i'm not i'm not saying anything is better or worse but if we value something if we think something's important then we then we should really dig into how to 
support it and maximize its importance. Sure. But there's no shortage of bad guys in this story. I mean, you've got streaming services, you've got uh, major record labels, you've got landlords, you've got politicians. There are lots of people you can blame for things, yeah. I guess. But is there a, I mean, is it important to bring all those things together? Is, is the politician the place to make all the changes that can trickle down? Uh, you know, how do we fix all this? That's uh, how, how do I know? <laughs> um, yeah, there are a lot of bad guys um, and girls uh, and people. Um, I don't think calling them bad guys and girls and people is 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 um, helping. There are far more. There's some great people in this debate who are far more vocal than me, as I'm sure I, I'm not. I don't really show up anywhere. Um, I'm not on the news. I don't get interviewed very much. I'm very, and that's deliberate. Mm-hmm. I'm strategic about that. I, I, I believe there are better voices that are advocating for music venues or advocating for um, fair play or whatever. And I'm supportive of all of them. I think that my, my solution is to have a different conversation about music. That's my solution, is that we need to change the conversation from prioritizing the internal value of music to the prioritizing the external value of music. Mm-hmm. And... That if we if we have this if we can prove that without music the world would be worse, how would it be worse? In many ways, people would be poorer. There'd be less tourists. There'd be, you know, health and well-being would go down. Blah 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 blah. If we if we get it to that kind of base level of without music, what are we? Um, and with music, what could we be? And get away from the. I think the industry has to have the conversations that it's having about equity, whether it's through streaming or gender or whatever. And I'm hoping that, and I do believe that change is coming. Um, and I'm supportive of anything that puts artists first uh, because our industry does not. And I'm open to say that yeah. uh, we don't. Um, but I think that a lot of governments do not have the, the, the framework to understand this external value of music. Right. We haven't written it down on a piece of paper and say, this is why you should give a shit. Well, we have tried Um, and we haven't advocated as one. You know, we advocate as in sectors. I think that that could create change, but it requires a a mindset shift and minds are the hardest thing to change. Also, another thing of this recognition that no matter how bad things are, things aren't that bad. So, you know, if you. If, if you're an aspiring musician and you live in parts of the DRC right now, you know, that's bad. Mm. Um, the fact that the way you look or who you choose to be attracted to could impact your ability to pursue a career in music is bad. Um, all, you know, the, like, I, I think that we do need a whole scale rethinking of how music can be a solution to problems that have nothing to do with music. And that if we solve those problems or we contribute to the solutions, then obviously with our self-interest at heart, who's going to benefit? And, 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 now, and if we don't do it now, then we're not going to do it. Uh, I, I truly believe that if we can't elevate the value of music now, then, we have, then, then, um, then we're never going to. Right. What's it going to take? Like, you know, and, and this is another thing. There's a lot of opportunities that people are looking at problematically, like this whole idea that local music is now the only live music. And probably if we're looking at the climate emergency, local music is going to become increasingly important. I see that as a, ta- as a taxable opportunity. If we can increase the value of local music, then more people pay tax and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. That's not a, that's, that, I, I don't see that as a bad thing. I just see that as okay. Then we have to rethink how we get artists into people's lives internationally, which is being done. And let's. And I'm the eternal optimist. So, well, that, I mean, that's good to know because there are reasons not to be. Like, for instance, I saw in a British newspaper recently there was a, a, a poll on you know, given given that we have all these essential services, which are the least essential jobs and oh, yeah. artists. 7% music is art that because that, that's that's proof in the pudding that we aren't doing that we're really bad at making the argument I just said. Mm-hmm. If people see artists, people do not see artists as inessential. No. They don't because we're ubiquitously a part of everyone's life. The ubiquity 
And I use the analogy of clean water, right? Clean water is only important when you don't have it. So, you know, um, I've turned on the tap today and not thought anything of it because I'm lucky. I don't don't believe that people view it as an essential. I believe that people, I, I, I think it's a cognitive dissonance that is reinforced by the ubiquity of our sector. I think that if it went away, then I think that that would change. But also uh, people see it as something that is, again, it's the whole like, you should be lucky to be an artist or you accept a life of poverty if you choose to be an artist and all this bullshit. And, um, and it's, it's up to us as artists, musicians and the representatives to change that. Why should we ask other people to solve our problems? From a, uh, a local perspective, I mean, there's a lot of things that you do. You, like you say, you fly around a lot, you turn up at places, you have conversations with people. You can't be everywhere, though. What, if, if there is no Shane Shapiro in your neighborhood, what should you do? Most important thing is vote. <laughs> Sorry to say. Um, <laughs> most of the people, so there, there are some other issues that we face, right? A lot of people see that our issues are focused on young people. And yes, that's a priority, but music is for everybody. Um, but young people are adversely affected often by a lack of music and cultural policy, and they tend to be the ones who don't vote, so government doesn't care. Mm -hmm. So especially in local elections, which no one votes for, and especially in the U.S. where they have elections for the stupidest things, like sheriffs and comptrollers and all sorts of things that shouldn't be elected. Mm -hmm. Um, But I always think that that's important. Um, and, and this whole dichotomy of us versus them, you know, placing the blame on someone else, I think that that's not helpful. You know, property developers are not the enemy. Um, they're just trying to solve a problem specific to them. And we're not providing ourselves out as a solution to their problem. So like I, you know, um, we all benefit from development, but we're all in homes, that needed planning permission at one point that had to be built by somebody and so on and so forth. So I think that it's, it's, you know, uh, being locally engaged is so important. So we're starting a campaign in the next month. We, we put out this recovery plan last month. It was called the music city's resilience handbook. And to be frank, it was just me scared just writing about all these things that I wish would happen in places um, that I think could happen in places and the response to the report was overwhelming, more than I thought it ever would be. It was actually a bit of a beta test for me, to be honest. It was, is sound diplomacy relevant or not? And if no one cares about this report, then maybe I should go into teaching. Um, but thankfully, <laughs> people cared. And, um, and now we're working on what we're calling an a economic and ecosystem recovery plan. We'll come up with a fancy acronym for it. But, and, and the first thing that we would advocate, regardless of size of city, is, is to assemble. So every town, city, place should have a music steering group of one, in one way or another. And ideally, half of the people on it shouldn't be music people. Because the only way to get stuff done locally is to present solutions that are fixable in ways that can be fixed. And music tends not to have a voice because it's multiple voices. Um, to create local change, you need a local voice. So we're trialing it in like five or six cities right now, creating like local music ecosystem recovery plans. Because a lot of things as well is a lot of it right now is focused on venues, which is right because venues are the most threatened. And, uh, you know, and I'm, I'm hugely supportive of the work that the Music Venue Trust does and the National Independent Venue Association in the U.S. and, and others in live DMA. But the ven- a venue is part of an ecosystem and the entire ecosystem is threatened. You know, the U- here in the UK, they're now talking about completely eliminating music from the curriculum because there's no time and only focusing on English and math. And you're just like, great. So we're just going to have a whole bunch of, you know, analytically brilliant, you know, socially absent people <laughs> that were, you know, it, it's it. it it's that fundamental lack of understanding. And I do believe that this ecosystem argument is, it has to be the, the bow that wraps around. Without venues, there is no ecosystem. But also without music education, there is no ecosystem. Or without um, uh, robust IP protections, there is no ecosystem. 
Does the concept of soft power play into this in any particular way? I know you mentioned the sort of the identity of being Canadian as being important, but but from a from a political, I guess, posturing perspective, um, you know, what sort of card does that play? Oh, totally, all the time. Yeah, most of the time, people want to engage because they because music's cool. Hmm. All the boring stuff I talk about about policy, you know, that's harder. But yeah, we get countries all the time. We. Pre-COVID, we probably had five or six cities a month come to us asking us how to be a music city, right? Which is, you know, mine and other people's faults. And it's great, but, you know, just slapping a brand on it um, does nothing. Mm. And um, a lot of cities have just slapped a brand on it. Yeah. So, you know, I, I... So we we try to encourage the soft power, but say the soft power has to come with hard policy. Mm. Because I know the UN's uh, Music Cities uh, project, there are a lot of cities. I mean, I'm from Auckland, which is one of them. and uh, UNESCO. Uh, yeah. UNESCO, sorry, yeah, of course. Um, so the UNESCO uh, Music Cities project. Yep. Uh, but there are cities, like you say, have just slapped the badge on it and, and don't seem to be doing anything. Any, Yeah, any, any network is good. Um, I'm a big fan of the UNESCO Music Cities network. If a city says I care about music, that's great. Um, and it's quite a vast network. Um, some cities have done more than others with it, but you would expect that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do fear sometimes that uh, focusing on the brand is cover to not do anything. Right? We're a city of music. Yeah. Great. <laughs> and um, and I, I, I fear that unintentionally that because other priorities have taken precedent, be it housing or, or development or education or crime or whatever, um, the branding itself is a means to an end. And, um, sure. and, and, you know, I mean, also name one that isn't. Mm, that's yeah. true. You know, a lot of cities say I want to be Austin and I want to be Nashville. And those are unique examples. They both have their own independent stories of how they are the way they are. They're both wildly successful, but they're also victims of their own success um, because they have inequities like any American city mm-hmm. um, filled with great, incredible, intelligent people, but also challenges. And, and a, a city should not be Austin. A city should be whatever the city should be. Austin is Austin. Um, I, I, and, and I admire Austin's commitment to music. I think every city should be committed to music in their own way. And that's, but, but there's, I, I, we always say there's no competition here. Music is not this thing that if there's a famous artist over there, it doesn't mean you can, you can't create a famous artist over here. Right. Um, we, we, there, there is none of that in music. There's enough to go around. I think I heard that I, I had a chat with my friend, Will Page, I guess, you know, yeah, yes. uh, a, Spotify, uh, economist, economist. Spotify yeah. and one of the people who, um, it freaks me out because of how intelligent he is. So he and um, I think he said that 130,000 or 140,000 tracks get uploaded every day to Spotify. That's one DSP. Wow. Like Jesus, think about the competition. It's I see that as obviously that's a challenge, but it doesn't mean that if one's successful, it doesn't mean that five can't be or ten. Yeah, I, I do have difficulty with the concept of there being too much music in the world. That doesn't make any sense to me at all. There's no, there's no such thing as too much music. It's, it's, you know, um, the market will sort that out, right? The objective is for us to enlarge the market. It's not to stop anything. Like I, I, I'd be happy if half a million songs were uploaded a day, even if half of them suck, it doesn't matter if, if they mean something to someone, then, then they're creating self-worth in that person. And that in and of itself is, is, is a, is a win for me. Right. That's the thing. It's it, we have to go back to that carnal value that we all miss. It's it's that feeling when you're I, I, when I do my public talks and stuff, I use the water analogy a lot, which I've already said the whole clean water thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also say, like, you, when you're at a gig and you're immersed in a um, in a song and you have that moment. Right. You could be standing next to someone who you vehemently disagree with on everything. You know, I could. Like, as I said, you know, my family's Jewish. I could be standing next to a Nazi, but if we're both loving that song, it doesn't matter that that person's a Nazi and I'm Jewish. 
I know that's an extreme example, but that's it matters a little bit. <laughs> but I won't I won't know in that moment. Sure. Right? Yeah, gotcha. I'll just be standing next to someone and we'll be united by music. That's what I mean. Of course it matters. <laughs> yeah, I do understand the point you're making, of course. That moment Yeah, it's it's that moment that we un that, that we dissipate because it happens all the time. Sure. And it, that moment is so important because it's the it's the product of an ecosystem and a supply chain and a creative process that led to that moment happening. And yeah, I'll use a different analogy next time. But you know, it's it's <laughs> it, it, it's like for me, one of the one of the big successes. So I'll, I'll give you an example. Is in in Georgia, there's a number of music tax credits for recording and production. They're not perfect. I'm not going to get into why they. A lot of them do not work. But in order to get the first one passed, the lobby, the music lobby in Georgia, took a bunch of policymakers into the studio and recorded a song with them because the policymakers did not understand how, what an engineer does or what a producer does, how a soundboard works, all these things that you don't need to know. If you hear the song, they were so mm-hmm. amazed by the process that it, it ignited this additional love of music in them. And the tax credit program was passed since it's, it, it there's work to be done on it, but, but it's, it's that, right? If you and and all of these policymakers and senators and House of Representatives members love music. Everyone, most people love or at least like music. Mm-hmm. But when they have the radio on in the car, they're not thinking about how it was recorded. Sure. And if you and, and it's the same thing at a festival when you're immersed in a song, um, you're not thinking about everything around you. The 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 sense essentially you have to build a city. To create a festival, a festival is a mini is a mini, you know, settlement, um, and um, so it's that thing. And and if we don't if we don't unpack that, which we're not doing very well, maybe I uh, maybe I need to work harder. Um, we lose the argument to say that if you don't, you lose that moment if you don't have everything else attached to that moment. Right. And we are now in some countries like the UK where we may lose that moment in many venues around the country because we haven't been able to explain everything that goes into that moment to the people that need to listen. Is it the case that uh, this is a sort of an ebb and flow thing where sometimes it gets worse for music, sometimes it gets better for music, or is it the case that everything's suddenly on fire and, and we're at the risk of losing everything? Um, I don't know. I, this, is a, this is an unprecedented challenge. But it's an unprecedented challenge made worse by the situations that we put ourselves in as an industry. Mm-hmm. I think that, especially in live music, especially in the countries in which you can't open, um, and I'm not discounting that, I, I fear for and a huge respect for my friends going through hell right now trying to save their businesses. I, I, we have been through this before in other ways, but... I think if we if we don't take advantage of this as an opportunity to as build back better or whatever we call it, right, then we're mm-hmm. then we may not have that opportunity again because we're going to be faced with a climate emergency that well, we are already that is going to categorically change how our business fun- operates. Anyways, if we can't tour like or can't tour very much because it's just not right to do so, then we have to think about how we connect with people differently, right? And making music is, is not that green. You know, production of vinyl is not that green. I know there's solutions to that. All this stuff that we need to be mm-hmm. thinking of that, that are, that lots of people are thinking of that um, is going to change our business anyways. So if we could position ourselves now as, you know, arbiters of change and, and, and leaders across all industries, then, the, then we will benefit greatly because, and, and the beauty of this in my head is that our product's not going away. Like we don't know, there's no time, you know, people are always going to need what we're selling. Mm. And I don't think you're ever going to run out of musicians, even if the sort of the economic incentive to do that falls out the bottom. No, I don't. Well, I think that we're, 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 there's a fear that we're going to have, we're going to lose a generation of professional musicians because of this but these people will still perform informally. 
Mm. Can't take that out of someone. Um, but it, it, you know, it's a, it's a critical time right now. The next six months are going to be very critical for our business, I feel, sure. uh, collectively. Best case scenario, five years from now, you're sitting down there and, and uh, congratulating yourself on a job well done. How does the world look? I think every city in town having some engagement with music in one way or another. Um, you know, local music initiatives having seats at the table when they need to have seats at the table. Um, uh, a healthier, more equitable music industry that's making more money for more people who don't look like you and me. You know, robust IP in every country in the world rather than some countries in the world. Those are the things that I'm hopeful for. Mm. Those all sound like really sensible things. It's surprising that it should be such a hard task to convince people of those things. Um, it is, unfortunately. Sense and action are different. And yep. But I, I, I am hopeful or I wouldn't be doing this. And the music, do something else. the music fan kid who was uh, then working in record shops and then uh, getting into the industry, pleased with where he's ended up? <laughs> I don't know. I'm, you know, I, to be honest, a lot of my time at Sound Diplomacy, I'm trying to find ways not to work in the music industry, right? Because I've been doing it for so long and I share frustrations like everyone who spends 15 years in our business. Um mm. I think I'm, I'm proud that I found something. I, you know, I have a purpose and it's all about purpose for me. I believe what I'm doing is right. I think I'm right. Um, and I believe that I'm honoring my love of music. And, and so, yeah, I guess, you know, um, I'm, and I have a job and I get paid to do it and I employ people and they, I think like their jobs, who knows? You should ask them. But um, I, I'm proud of all that, you know, and I'm proud that I can't, you know, I came to the UK not knowing anybody and I've created something out of nothing. Um, and and I'm and I'm most proud of the people I work with. I'm surrounded by and the most amazing people who make me look good. I can't do it without them. So I and, and I'm, I am and, they, you know, and um. And they get better and better, I find, and get to work with even better people as I, as we grow. So that I'm proud of. You're only as good as who you surround yourself with. Fantastic. Shane, thanks so much for your time. Thanks, Deborah. I appreciate it. That's the very sound and very diplomatic Shane Shapiro. And that's the MTF podcast. You can find out more about all the activities of Sound Diplomacy, including an upcoming Sustainable Development Goals and Music Conference with Reeperbahn Festival in just a couple of weeks at sounddiplomacy.com or at sounddiplomacy on Twitter. The MTF podcasts out every Friday or thereabouts, so don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already, and you can share, like, rate, and review, of course. I'm Dubba. You will find me at Dubba on Twitter. That's very straightforward. And you'll now find MTF and everything we're doing from Music Tech Fest to the International Innovation Labs, policy work, conferences, and much more. That's all now together at MTF Labs on Twitter and mtflabs.net online. This episode of the MTF Podcast was edited by Sergio Castillo. The music I so rudely talked all over at the beginning of the show was by Roy Spiegler. And what you can hear in the background now, that's music by Airtone. The MTF audio logo was created by Run Dreamer. You're going to hear that again in just a second. You stay safe wherever you are in the world. Have a great week, and we'll talk soon. Cheers. Cheers.